Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about Oda Nobunaga, an incredibly important figure from Japanese history. Now, Oda Nobunaga is known as the first of the three great unifiers in Japan. Thanks to him and the two blokes that came after him, Japan was transformed from a fractious and splintered nation that was overrun by local warlords into a unified and centralized realm. Nobunaga essentially represents the beginning of the end of a period of Japanese history known as the Sengoku period. This was around 150 years um, that was defined by civil war, unending regional conflict all across Japan. Uh, But once Nobunaga and his successes were finished, centralized government had been restored and Japan entered into a period of relative peace and stability. But, But how did Nobunaga do this? Quite simply, he spent his entire life at war. Nobunaga's undying ambition throughout his entire life was to unify Japan. And so to that end, he spent all his time fighting, just fighting and fighting and fighting to bring other clans and other provinces under his control. He built up his power base from relatively small origins as the leader of the Oda clan. He he was a powerful warlord in his own right, but uh, the Oda clan worked its way through all the neighbouring clans, either forcing them to join the Oda or annihilating them altogether. And then as Nobunaga's power grew, he set his sights even higher until he was able to capture the the imperial capital of Kyoto and from there undermine the power of opposing warlords all around Japan. Now, Nobunaga was immensely successful as a warlord. He was immensely successful in his, uh, in his mission to unify Japan. He didn't quite see it complete, however. He didn't live long enough to see his unification work completed. Uh, we, we'll obviously talk, talk about that in due course. But he set the stage for his heirs and successors to finish what he started. And I tell you this, what a start he made. It is impossible to say what might have happened in Japan without Nobunaga coming along and starting this uh, this process of unification. This bloke really does represent a massive shift in Japanese history. So a few different alert listeners have suggested Nobunaga and the other great unifiers for that matter as well as a topic. So thanks go to David Schultz and Alyssa for, uh, for getting in touch and, uh, and suggesting I get across this. But let's get underway. There is, of course, so much to get across. We're going to investigate the story of Oda Nobunaga, Japan's first great unifier. We're going to set the stage for the next two that came after him. And we're going to learn all about this bloke, what his deal was, what he got up to. And also, by the end of things, what he didn't manage to get up to as well. So here we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to the 23rd of June, 1534, to Nagoya, a city in Japan. You find it today, east of Tokyo. Uh, And it was then that Oda Nobunaga was born. He was the second son of the head of the mighty Oda clan. Uh, His dad was Oda Nobuhide and his wife, Dota Gozen. And uh, Nobuhide was a deputy deputy military governor, or or a shugo, of the Owari province. Uh, And he was quite an important bloke. He was obviously a clan head, as I say. He was a a daimyo, one of these uh, local uh, or regional warlords. And as I mentioned, Japan, riven with political division at this point, this period known as the Sengoku period, civil wars going on all over the place, provincial armies fighting each other, um, led by these these feudal lords, these daimyo. 
And uh, while there was an emperor, he really didn't hold much power. Japanese emperors didn't really for much of the country's history. Um, And uh, instead, power was concentrated in the hands, at this point in history, in the history of Japan, uh, concentrated in the hands of these these daimyos, these these warlords. Anyway, clans and provinces up and down Japan fought like mad for power and influence. And our mate Nobunaga, he was born at a time of great political and military conflict as a result. And as a young fella, he was a bit odd. He, he was a bit strange, Nobunaga. He used to run around and cause all sorts of mayhem with other, other young boys, irrespective of their social rank or class. He sort of uh, mixed with commoners, despite the fact that he was, uh, he was of noble birth. Um, and this decidedly un-aristocratic behaviour earned him the nickname The Fool of Owari, Owari being the province that he lived in. Uh, and this, this nickname stuck with him for many years, although it obviously became a lot less appropriate as he, as he grew up. Um, but uh, he served his purpose for the uh, for the Oda clan. He was used by his dad to patch up a political conflict with the rival Saito clan. He married the uh, he, he married clan leader Saito Dosan's daughter Nohime in 1549. But even this, even the marriage didn't calm uh, him down all that much. Uh, he couldn't even behave himself at his dad's funeral. In 1551, his old man died unexpectedly, and this cleared the way for Nobunaga to, to succeed him as the clan head. But during the funeral, Nobunaga had a great big carry on. his bloody chucking incense around, making a big fool of himself. And perhaps because of the erratic behaviour that, that sort of defined his younger years, there were plenty of people within the Oda clan that opposed Nobunaga taking Nobuhide's place. But let me tell you this, Nobunaga was not about to be stripped of what he perceived as his birthright. He gathered an army at Nagoya Castle and he went after anyone and everyone that wanted to take a shot at him, uh, which ended up being, uh, as it turns out, quite a few people. In 1552, he fought his uncle, Oda Nobuyuki, uh, who was eyeing off his dead brother's position. In 1553, he saw off an assassination attempt and blockaded enemy castles. Uh, and then in 1554, started going after rival clans, starting with the Imagawa clan, who had invaded the Awari province, perhaps sensing weakness uh, during the succession crisis. Now, he crushed the Imagawa. He refocused his attention on the familial snakes in the grass. He defeated a different uncle, Oda Nobutomo, uh, and burnt his castle to the ground, just to teach him a lesson. And then, uh, to teach him, I guess, another rather more final lesson, forced him to uh, commit ritual suicide, or seppuku, which I think we've talked about in previous episodes of, uh, of the podcast. Um, he didn't stop there with pruning the old family tree, however. The next, uh, next, next bloke on the chopping block was his own brother, his younger brother, who he also knocked off after an unsuccessful tilt at the clan leadership. But look, you know, I always enjoy watching an, an older brother assert dominance over a younger one, but he, Nobunaga did end up executing his younger brother in 1557, which I think is probably, you know, a bit much. I would have just, I don't know, nicked his Pokemon cards or something. Anyway, whatever. Um, He also knocked off his uncle, Oda Nobuyuki, uh, the first uncle that he'd scrapped with in 1558 and captured and burned a few more castles just for good measure. And so the long and the short of it is this. By 1559, at the age of just 25, Nobunaga has lain waste to all of his immediate challenges within the Oda clan, brothers and uncles and what have you. And as a result was more or less completely unchallenged as the daimyo of Awari province and as the leader of the uh, of the Oda clan. But he still had a lot of fighting to get done. As I mentioned, most of his life involved fighting and fighting and more fighting on his way to, you know, uh, or on his mission to unify much of Japan. Uh, and it didn't stop, of course, once he'd secured uh, Owari province. Uh, the Imagawa clan still had their eye on the Owari, despite the licking he'd given them a couple of years back. And so in 1560, they rallied an army of over 25,000 soldiers, still sensing weakness in the uh, in the Oda clan, and so uh, and prepared to attack. 
And by contrast, Nobunaga could only field around a tenth of that between two and 3,000 troops. Really didn't look good for our boy at this point. All of his advisors counseled uh, him to take refuge in his castle, knuckle under, defend as best he could with the limited troops that he had. But nope, Nobunaga, he wasn't that kind of leader. All offense, no defense. And so he gets on the front foot despite being outnumbered 10 to 1 and ordered his troops to get after the Imagawa forces. And as luck would have it, they found the perfect chance to attack despite this overwhelming uh, numerical disadvantage. In June 1560, the Imagawa army was encamped by a narrow gorge. They were celebrating some early victories in their campaign, getting a bit pissed up and having a good time. And Nobunaga's men took up positions overlooking the Imagawa forces, encamped as they were, and then readied an attack. They organised a decoy army as a feint to provoke a, uh, a reaction from the Imagawa clan. They were hoping that the Imagawa forces would rush to attack this decoy army. And in the meantime, the rest of the, uh, the Oda forces could encircle the, uh, the Imagawa position and uh, attack them from the rear as they mobilised. Now, it was a hot day. Most of the Imagawa didn't have their armour on, and many of them, as I mentioned, had, they were several drinks deep at this point They were while they were celebrating. And so Nobunaga picked a perfect moment to launch an attack against the completely unprepared Imagawa and pulled off a victory that was as stunning as it was unlikely. And for good measure, the Oda even managed to slay the leader of the Imagawa clan, Yoshimoto. The Battle of Okehazama is often described as a turning point in Japanese history. It was the battle that made Nobunaga. He went from a young and relatively minor daimyo to one of the most renowned and respected warlords in all of Japan with this display of, of, of strategic and, and tactical brilliance. He was outnumbered by an order of magnitude. He had absolutely no business winning this battle, but when it he did and in doing so set himself on a path to greatness. The prestige and the glory that he won with this battle meant that other warlords were very quick to swear fealty to him. They were so impressed by his victory. And this is where it all really began for Nobunaga. All the scrapping over Awari province and, and, and the clan leadership, that was small potatoes, a minor regional scuffle over a small bit of land around Nagoya. In time, Oda Nobunaga would conquer and unite much of Japan, and this was something that was only made possible with the incredible start he made to his offensive military campaigning with the Battle of Okehazama. And uh, before we move on from the battle, there's one final thing I want to uh, I want to talk about here, and that is the fact that this battle uh, brought two men to Nobunaga's attention, two very very important men, both within his lifetime and later on after he died. Uh, we're going to talk about these men in much greater detail uh, later on, but I, 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 want to, I want to bring them up now and, and sort of flag the beginning of their part in Nobunaga's story. The first one was his sandal bearer, a bloke whose name was Kinoshita Tokichiro. And uh, so impressed was Nobunaga with Tokichiro's exploits on the battlefield that he actually brought him into his inner circle, made him one of his retainers. And secondly, uh, it wasn't actually one of his own men that had fought for him uh, on Nobunaga's side. It was actually one of Imagawa Yoshimoto's retainers, a bloke whose name was Matsudaira Motoyasu. Uh, now, this bloke, uh, Motoyasu, offered to serve Nobunaga instead after the battle. He offered to swear fealty to him uh, once he'd been defeated, and Nobunaga accepted. And you may not recognize the name of these two fellows, Kinoshita Tokichiro and Matsudaira Motoyasu. Uh, because they are not the names that they are known to by history. But 
Rest assured, we will be coming back to them and the monumental impact that they had on Japanese history, so keep them in mind for now. Anyway, in the wake of Okazama, things continued to go very, very well indeed for Nobunaga and, more broadly, the, the Oda clan. The Imagawa were all but wiped out after this battle. Uh, Matsudaira Motoyasu has brought the Matsudaira clan on side with the Oda. And Nobunaga uh, also married his daughter to the Shingen clan to, to shore up another alliance. And then, um, in 1561, another opportunity to strengthen the Oda's position emerged. Uh, if you remember, we talked uh, before about uh, Nobunaga getting married. He married the daughter of Saito Dosan, the, the old enemy of the Oda. He was used in a political marriage, much like his daughter was. Um, now, Saito Dosan, I mean, he's dead. He died ages ago back in 1556. And in the meantime, his adopted son, Saito Yoshitatsu, had inherited leadership of the Saito clan. But then, in 1561... He died at the age of just 31, very unexpected, and his son, Saito Tatsuoki, was just 13 when he became the Saito clan leader. Now, sensing weakness with a kid leading the old enemies of the Oda, never mind that he'd married a a, a woman who came from this clan, in 1561, Nobunaga began to campaign into Saito-held Mino province and won a string of battles and caused yet more people to defect over to the Oda. And this wasn't just through his victories on the battlefield either. He sent off his former, former sandal bearer, this bloke I mentioned before, Kinoshita Tokichiro, uh, to bribe other warlords into supporting the Oda over, over the Saito. And in doing all this, Nobunaga was extremely effective in conquering Mino province and leaving the Saito clan in tatters that a child as their leader, their, these continued invasions and incursions left them on the back foot. There were new castles being built, allies being bought off, absolute disaster for the Saito. But a great result for Nobunaga and the Oda, who by 1567 have effectively conquered Mino province altogether and added it to the ever-growing sphere of influence that the Oda with Nobunaga in charge enjoyed. But of course, there were always more battles to be fought, and as soon as Mino province was done and dusted, Nobunaga was looking for what was next. And what was next was Issei province, which was ruled not by a single clan, but by various squabbling families. And so the Oda, very cleverly, under Nobunaga's leadership, picked them apart. One by one, pulled them apart pretty quickly and added Issei to the bag as well, uh, simply because the people who were fighting over it weren't able to unite and and keep Nobunaga at bay. After Issei province was done, next up was Omi province. This one was a little trickier. Um, Nobunaga didn't want to fight for it. Uh, Omi province stood between his land and Kyoto, the Japanese capital, and the powerful Azai clan was in, was in charge of it. Now, Nobunaga wanted easy and conflict-free access to Kyoto. He didn't want to become embroiled in a a long conflict over Omi province. And so instead, he found a diplomatic way to gain a foothold into Omi province. And this was by, once again, arranging a marriage. He arranged a marriage between his sister, Oichi, and the Azai Daimyo, a bloke whose name was Azai Nagamasa. And in doing this, uh, Nobunaga essentially achieved what he wanted to with Omi province without spilling a drop of blood, right? He didn't want to have to fight or struggle. He didn't want a big conflict in order to gain easy access to the imperial capital. And so by creating this alliance between the Oda and the Azai, he was able to get that road straight across to, uh, to Kyoto, march through allied lands without any, without any bloodshed, as I say. So it's very, very neatly done by Nobunaga, although I will say... 
this situation did not last. Uh, Nagamasa and Nobunaga did not stay friends for very long. We'll come to that in due course. But sure enough, this temporary alliance did secure a, a, a clear path to Kyoto for Nobunaga. And this was very important because in 1568, Nobunaga received a visitor who would offer him a unique opportunity to expand the power and influence of the Oda clan like never before. This bloke's name was Ashikage Yoshiaki, and he was the brother of a former shogun. This uh, this former shogun had been murdered. His name was Ashikage Yoshiteru. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the shogun, the position of shogun, um, essentially military dictator. Uh, for much of Japanese history, the shogun was in de facto control of Japan. Yeah, sure, there was the emperor, but for most of medieval Japan's history, real power lay in the hands of the shogun. But then again, how much power that was, I mean, it waxed and waned depending on how much centralized power the imperial government had at any one time. And of course, right now, towards the end of the Sengoku period, that's not very much. Uh, nonetheless, being the shogun is still a very big deal, even then. And uh, Yoshiaki, he came to Nobunaga with an offer that was going to greatly benefit the both of them. Yoshiaki's brother had been murdered, as I say, he'd been murdered at the behest of the Miyoshi clan, uh, who had then, after they'd done away with the shogun, installed their own puppet shogun. Uh, and Yoshiaki, uh, clearly recognising which way the wind was blowing, he came to Nobunaga and requested him to go to Kyoto, take the fight to the Miyoshi, knock them off, avenge his brother's death, and make him shogun instead of this Miyoshi puppet. Now, Nobunaga already had been planning some kind of a, of a move on Kyoto, and he saw this as the perfect opportunity to increase his influence all the way to the heart of the Japanese capital under the guise of legitimacy, right? It was this was vengeance that he was pursuing for a for a wronged party. This wasn't a this wasn't an illegitimate invasion or anything else like that. Nobunaga was helping Yoshiagi defend his family's honor. So he marched towards Kyoto. He crushed those that stood in his way, like the Rakaku clan. He accepted alliances with those who wanted to join him, like the Matsunaga clan. And between his military might, his fearsome reputation, and all of these clever alliances that he brokered, Nobunaga captured Kyoto before the year was out. Before the end of 1568, he had taken complete control of the capital and installed Yoshiaki as shogun as he'd promised. Now, as much as Yoshiaki had complained about the former puppet shogun under the Miyoshi clan, he now was one himself under Nobunaga. Nobunaga refused all official appointments by the shogun, by the emperor. He was happy instead to remain the power behind the throne, happy to wield the real power without the title. And in this new position of essential political supremacy, he did some very he did some very clever political moving and shaking. He took advantage of the fact that the new shogun was more or less in his pocket to further his goal of conquest across Japan. And here's what he did. He had Yoshiaki uh, organize a great big feast in Kyoto as the shogun, great big official affair it was, and he invited all of the daimyo from all around Japan. And anyone who didn't attend this feast was immediately labeled as a traitor, because clearly they didn't support the shogun. Clearly they didn't respect the legitimacy of either the shogun or the emperor or indeed the imperial regime if they didn't come to this celebration in the capital. And so in rejecting the invitation to the feast, these daimyo marked themselves as disloyal subjects. And using this pretext, given the fact that these daimyo were seen as enemies of, uh, of the imperial realm, Nobunaga went after them. He went after Asakura Yoshikage, the head of the Asakura clan in 1570. He needed a reason to continue to attack other daimyos and conquer their land. 
and their you know supposed disrespect for the shogun of the empire was was the perfect excuse however it is a trick that he only really managed to pull off once uh, because it turns out that the asakura clan had plenty of friends in high places first of all the Azai clan, uh, you'll remember them, led by Nobunaga's new brother-in-law, uh, Azai Nagamasa, um, and they broke their alliance with the Oda straight away to fight instead with the Asakura, because the Azai and the Asakura had been allied for generations, and they weren't about to let this Nobunaga upstart get in the way of that. Uh, and the Azai, aren't the, they're not the only ones either, if you believe it. Before long... The new shogun, Yoshiaki, and his clan, the Ashikaga, also throw in against Nobunaga with the Asakura. A very poor payment, you would think, for Nobunaga making him the shogun, but that's how it went. And it only got worse from there. The Miyoshi, the Rokaku, all of these other clans that Nobunaga had fought and beaten, they all got together to oppose him. And for the first time now, the Oda were beaten back. Nobunaga recognised that he needed to retreat back towards Nagoya and gather his forces. And this is where Matsudaira Takichio comes back into the story. The bloke who had defected from the Imagawa after the Battle of Okehazami, remember him. This bloke who had started his career as a vassal of the Imagawa clan who had switched sides and put himself under the command of the Nobunaga clan after the Battle of Okehazama... He had built up his power and influence in the intervening years and in 1567 had changed his name to Tokugawa Ieyasu. And Tokugawa Ieyasu, in case you don't know, is a hugely famous name, a massively important figure in Japanese history. He would go on to found the Tokugawa Shogunate, which lasted for over two and a half centuries. But... That's a story for another time. At this point, as powerful as he is, he is still a loyal vassal of Nobunaga and comes to his aid against all the foes of the Oda clan in 1570. And the Battle of Anagawa sees the Oda and the newly named Tokugawa clan united to fight off the Azai and the Asakura. Nobunaga had very, very enthusiastically adopted gunpowder weaponry. He was one of the first Japanese military leaders to see the true potential of firearms. And his troops, backed up by the Tokugawa clan, put them to great use in this battle, which saw half the Azai-Asakura forces killed. Nobunaga is back. Baby can't keep this guy down. And into the 1570s, he continued the fight against the Azai, against the Asakura clans, until both of their leaders committed seppuku. They were so soundly defeated. And you'll never guess what he did next. He is the most powerful warlord in Japan. He is the de facto shogun, although he never officially takes the title. No one can stand in his way. Although that didn't stop people trying, of course. He just kept fighting and fighting and fighting. There was a peasant movement known as the Iko Iki that tried to stand up to him and was crushed. The Mori clan tried to stand up to him and they were crushed. Uh, and as Nobunaga returned to Kyoto, old mate Ashikaga Yoshiaki, the official shogun, he faced the music. Nobunaga got his own back uh, on Yoshiagi, let me tell you. Nobunaga giveth and Nobunaga taketh away. And after having elevated Yoshiaki to the position of Shogun back in 1568, he was also the one to depose him from the position and drive him out of Kyoto and into exile in 1573. And that was the end of the Ashikaga Shogunate, which of course weakened the position and the power of the emperor too as Nobunaga's position 
only became stronger. And this wasn't just because of his battlefield exploits either. He did put a fair few other things in place to weaken his daimyo rivals over the years. Uh, He established a range of economic reforms that were designed to enrich him rather than other local provincial warlords and leaders. Uh, He minted new coins. He established set exchange rates for existing currencies. He abolished local road tolls uh, to take money away from local leaders and reformed the merchant guild system and had them instead pay the imperial imperial government directly. And he also undertook a massive reform of the tax system after a huge land survey, which brought even more money into the coffers in Kyoto, which effectively he now was, at this point, in control of. But that's all boring. There were always more enemies to conquer, always more battles to be fought, and that was his focus. Around this time, another clan, the Takeda clan, they made their move against the Oda. And the conflict with the Takeda was very interesting um, because of the involvement of one of Nobunaga's family members, Lady Otsuyua, uh, his aunt, who was a samurai, or rather an onomusha, she was female, Uh, She was in charge of the defense of one of the Oda's castles. And uh, the Takeda, they laid siege to this castle. uh, And uh, Otsuyu did a good job of defending it for months. She was very successfully defending this castle until she just decided to change sides and hand it over to the Takeda. I couldn't really find a reason as to why she betrayed her nephew, the most powerful warlord in the country, but she did. And so the Takeda clan were off to the races, a massive win against the Oda here. And the Takeda didn't waste the momentum they'd gained with this victory. They used it as an opportunity to turn the screws on Nobunaga and, and his allies as well. They beat Tokugawa Iyasu in the, at the 1573 Battle of Mikata Gahara, which forced Nobunaga to come to his friend's aid, lest the Tokugawa clan be wiped out completely. Nobunaga led 30,000 troops himself in order to take the fight to, uh, to the Takeda before things got even more out of hand. And this ultimately resulted in the 1570, uh, 1575 Battle of Nagashino. And this settled the matter. Settled the matter once and for all. Nagashino is sometimes described as the point at which Japanese warfare properly entered the modern era. As Nobunaga's, uh, Nobunaga's arquebusiers, armed as they were with guns, shot the Takeda cavalry to pieces, killing around two-thirds of the opposing army. And that's what you get. That's what you get for going after Nobunaga, mate. He was an absolutely ruthless victor, and he didn't have much mercy for his foes, let me tell you. At this point, Nobunaga is the preeminent power in Japan. He is once again the de facto shogun, a dominant political force in Kyoto, and in control of a huge amount of territory across Japan. But, as ever, He is not one to rest on his laurels. And even after this string of successes against the Takeda, he makes sure to bolster his position even further. He built the mighty Azuchi Castle outside of Kyoto as a way to strengthen himself against the remains of the Takeda and the Mori, as well as the Uesugi clan to the north. Speaking of the Uesugi, they were one of the very few clans who actually managed to beat Nobunaga on the battlefield. Uh, In 1576, Nobunaga began to move against them. Uh, but the Uesugi didn't shy away from the uh, from the challenge. Their leader, Uesugi Kenshin, raised an army and took the fight to the Oda when Nobunaga started to get aggressive and won two 
the the battle of uh, of Tadorigawa in 1577 was a stunning Uesugi victory. Uh, despite being heavily outnumbered, the Uesugi managed to trick the Oda into attacking across a river and then cut them down as they did so. But knowing when to hold them and also when to fold them, Nobunaga called a retreat before he'd lost too many men and managed to get away without too much harm being done and actually considered at that point just giving up on the fight against the Uesugi altogether. He was on the cusp of just deciding he didn't want the provinces to the north. He wasn't going to contest them, given how successful the Uesugi had been on the battlefield against him. But then, in early 1578, just as the Uesugi leader Kenshin was preparing a renewed campaign against the Oda, he just died. And as he died without any biological kids, uh, it provoked a succession crisis amongst his adopted children that completely engulfed the Uesugi. So that problem took care of itself, no worries. By the time we reach the 1580s, Nobunaga controls over 20 Japanese provinces. He rules over territory that stretches from where today you'll find Fukuoka in the northern part of Kyushu Island, right up along Honshu Island from Hiroshima to Kyoto to Nagoya, all the way up to Niigata. And his final goal, of course, as I've said, was nothing less than the unification of all Japan. And who knows how far he would have gone, given the successes that he had up until this point, had it not been for the Honoji incident in 1582. At this point, Nobunaga was planning his next set of conquests into Eshigo province, and he sent off various generals to various other provinces to continue to expand the Oda sphere of influence wherever they could. For instance, uh, that former, former sandal bearer, remember him, the bloke that we met as Kinoshita Tokichiro, uh, he is now a powerful commander under Nobunaga and is off fighting in Bichu province. But things aren't going too well for him as he fights uh, the Mori clan there, Tokichiro, or actually Perhaps we, uh, we won't use that name. We'll use the name that he is better known to history as Toyotomo Hideyoshi. Uh, he changed his name as well. Uh, Hideyoshi called for aid and reinforcements uh, in Bichu province and Nobunaga moved to support him. Now, Nobunaga was hanging out with Tokugawa Iyasu, um, uh, this monumentally important figure. You, you remember him from earlier. When he gets a call from Hideyoshi... Uh, Nobunaga says goodbye to Iyasu, he summons his generals, and he orders them to mobilize and come to Hideyoshi's aid. Nobunaga also made preparations to head to Bichu province himself. Uh, he went to Kyoto to visit Honoji Temple and host a tea ceremony. This was something he liked to do when he was passing through the capital. But one of the generals that he sent off to help Hideyoshi was a bloke whose name was Akeshi Mitsuhide. And we still don't know what Mitsuhide's deal was. We still don't know why he did what he's about to do. But as uh, as Nobunaga heads to Honoji Temple, as Mitsuhide also makes his way to Kyoto, the course of Japanese history is about to be forever changed by what was what was about to come to pass. Mitsuhide, along with other generals, was ordered off to Bichu province. Uh, so he went and he gathered his army and he marched southwest, going through Kyoto as he did so. And there was nothing that unusual or suspicious about that. There were plenty of examples in the past of Nobunaga ordering or allowing his generals to march through cities, bit of a show of force, give people a look at his magnificent armies, no worries there. However, when Mitsuhide arrived in Kyoto, rather than march his army through the city, he marched them to Honoji Temple, where Nobunaga was for this tea ceremony. And under the cover of darkness, he ordered his men to surround the temple. And when the sun rose, Nobunaga realized that he had been betrayed. 
He was accompanied by retainers and bodyguards, but against the huge army that was besieging the temple, they had no chance. He wasn't expecting to be attacked like this. He was deep within friendly territory in in a capital that he controlled with with only an entourage of those fiercely loyal to him. He didn't expect an entire army led by a treacherous general to, to end up betraying him in this way. But Mitsuhide used the orders to march to Bichu to mask his intention to bring an army into Kyoto and attack Nobunaga when he was weak and vulnerable. So realizing in Honoji Temple that this treachery would be his downfall, Nobunaga chose to take his own life rather than be captured. And even as his bodyguards fought Matsuhide's army to prevent them from getting into the temple, Nobunaga committed seppuku. Before he did this, he ordered his young page to set fire to the temple so his corpse would be incinerated rather than used as a grisly trophy by his enemies. And this page, uh, a young boy whose name was Mori Ranmaru, followed Nobunaga's orders to the letter. He helped his master commit seppuku, set fire to Honoji, and then he himself committed seppuku as well. And as a result, Ranmaru has become a very famous figure in Japanese history for his unswerving devotion and loyalty to his master following him all the way into the grave. Mitsuhide's forces eventually dispatched Nobunaga's bodyguards and they captured the temple as it burnt, but Mitsuhide never recovered Nobunaga's body. In fact, it was never found. I mean, it probably just burnt up in the fire, but there were those who told speculative stories about the fact that Nobunaga's corpse had never been discovered, but, I mean, he never re-emerged to history, and so it's safe to say that his life ended there on the 21st of June, 1582, despite what any number of speculative historical writers might like to say otherwise. We have two questions left to answer now. Firstly, why did Mitsuhito do this? And the short answer to that question is we really just do not know. There are plenty of theories. There's one that suggests that Mitsuhide carried a grudge with him from perceived slights or insults from years ago. There'd been an incident apparently where Mitsuhide had been yelled at by Nobunaga for serving his guests rotten fish. And uh, Mitsuhide may have been nursing the humiliation uh, of being dressed down in front of those guests ever since. But there's another theory that suggests that Mitsuhide suspected Nobunaga was trying to sideline him personally and thought that his career was on the decline. Nobunaga would often send retainers and generals into forced retirement in exile, and Mitsuhide might have been worried that that was on the horizon for him and so attempted to forestall that. Or there's even the possibility that he himself had ambitions to unite Japan and rule it in Nobunaga's stead. I mean, that's certainly conceivable and perhaps... Mitsuhide's ambitious nature got the better of him and tempted him into treachery, hoping that he would take Nobunaga's place. Whatever the reason, Mitsuhide brought about the end of Oda Nobunaga, who died at the age of just 47 as the most powerful man in Japan. Nobunaga is a monumentally important figure in Japanese history, the first of three great unifiers, beginning a campaign of unification that would ultimately end the Sengoku period and usher in centuries of relative political stability throughout Japan. Now, he didn't live to see it, of course, but Nobunaga's actions shaped the course of Japanese history. They kick-started the process of, of it evolving from a splintered, conflicted nation filled with squabbling warlords into a unified realm with a powerful, centralized government. And it all began with Nobunaga, his ambition, his power, his determination in seeking the unification of Japan. But 
I said there's a second question we have to answer, and that is, of course, what happened next after he died? Well, you might have noticed that before I said the name Toyotomi Hideyoshi with a level of weight and significance that perhaps his part in the story so far hadn't quite earned. And that is because he is, as I'm sure many of you have guessed, the second great unifier of Japan. So to answer this question of what happened next, we turn to Toyotomi Hideyoshi, who broke off his campaigning against the Mori in Buchu province after Nobunaga's death, and instead put every ounce of effort he had into avenging his former lord and master by going after Mitsuhide. Hideyoshi took Nobunaga's place as his perceived heir and successor, and now, as the most powerful warlord in the country, he continued down the path to the unification of Japan. But someone stood in his way, and I'm sure you can guess who it was. Someone else who also considered himself the heir and successor of Nobunaga. Tokugawa Ieyasu, the third great unifier. Before long, these two were embroiled in bitter conflict, fighting each other for Nobunaga's legacy and ultimate control of the campaigns to unify Japan. It's an interesting tale, but it's also a very long one. So to hear not just what happened to Hideyoshi after Nobunaga's death, but also how he rose from humble origins as a peasant to the most powerful man in the country and his ongoing conflict with Tokugawa Ieyasu, you'll have to come back next week when we get across the life and times of Japan's second great unifier, Toyotomi Hideyoshi. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Oda Nobunaga, someone without whom the history of Japan would have been absolutely unrecognizable. And of course, we really only have begun the story of this period uh, in Japanese history. Uh, It's a story that we can't really tell completely without getting across what happened with Hideyoshi, what happened with Ieyasu after him as well. So There's a fair bit more Japanese history coming down the pipeline. I hope you're happy to hear it. Um, But if you've got some suggestions for what should perhaps come after we get across this period of Japanese history, I'd love to hear it. Halfhousehistory.net, of course, is the website, and it's there you'll find the contact form, uh, links to old episodes, links to the merch shop as well, uh, and the Patreon, where you can support the show directly. um, And in exchange for your uh, exchange for your generous support every week all sorts of special patreon only bonuses are put out there have been, been a couple of new patrons this week so thank you so much for signing up it's great to have you along and uh, more broadly i want to welcome in all the new listeners to half ass history there have been a lot in recent weeks so however you've come across the show it is fantastic to have you i do hope you'll stick around uh plenty of old episodes for you to get across uh what, what are we up to what 230 so four years worth of content or more for you to enjoy or just i mean sit through painfully doesn't matter to me doesn't matter if you like it or not as long as you keep listening those numbers going up that's all i care about um no look it is it is fantastic to have all the all the all the new listeners fantastic the old listeners as well and the middle listeners no matter how long you've been listening it's great to have you uh tell your friends tell your enemies tell people about whom you feel largely ambivalent and, and also tell you like your mates who are just huge weebs as well because i mean we got we got Japanese history coming out the wazoo at the moment. So if there's ever been an opportunity to, to to get the anime fans on board, get those nerds to put down their manga and stop hugging their body pillows and listen to some Japanese history, now's the time to do it. So if you've got a, if there's a weeb in your life, 
why not suggest this episode to them? Uh, anyway, that's that for this week. I'm uh, going to close out this episode, of course, with a question posed on Reddit. This one comes to us from, oh my goodness me, I don't even know how to say this username. It's just a bunch of bunch of M's and W's, and then there's a D at the end for for a bit of variety. I don't know, man. Anyway, this person asks, why are shotguns so important to Japanese history? 